Hey everybody, this is Josh from Visto for another episode of the Canadian Immigration Pros Podcast. I am very happy to be joined by Stephen Paolacini. Stephen, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you so much, Josh. I'm really excited. I was just saying before the recording, Stephen has a long list of interesting topics that he wants to talk about. Many of them I also have very strong opinions about. So I think this will be a very interesting conversation. Before we jump into it, Stephen, can you just give us a quick introduction, a little background about who you are and, and the type of work that you're you're doing these days? Absolutely. Yeah. So I'm a regulated Canadian immigration consultant, uh, relatively new, I'd say. You know, I've been one since February uh, 2021. And, but I've been in the immigration space for about five years. And I, you know, studied engineering, but graduated from that. And by, uh, I would say just, you know, fate. I ended up in in this profession of uh, trying to keep a business partner in the country. So I'm very familiar with the challenges hmm. with uh, self employment for work experience and uh, PGWPs expiring and the owner operator LMIA. And so yeah, now I'm running SJP Immigration. I have a strong focus on business immigration is one of my things and really doing my best to simplify with technology. Uh, run, we run a cloud based company, so. We don't have an office. Work from anywhere is is what I believe in, and I do try and and provide value in in a lot of the marketing that I undertake. So I've got a YouTube channel and provide information there, just on on how to do simple applications or show self represented applicants, DIY applicants, how to navigate uh, operation manuals, guidelines, that sort of thing. So that's just a little bit about me, and uh, I'm living in Kelowna, British Columbia, but. Uh, you know, I spent the last eight years in Calgary. I just recently re- relocated and uh, I'm, I'm really happy to be on the show. Awesome. No, that's, that's a great kickoff and, and we'll make sure to link to some of those socials in the description below. Uh, and maybe Stephen will mention them at, at the end of the show if anyone is curious. So Stephen, why, why don't we jump in, especially into your focus, right? More on the business, business immigration side, which is also where I spent most of my time back, back when I was, um, you know, doing file work. There's a few topics here that, that we can discuss. I think definitely jumping into like LMIAs and LMIA fraud could be an interesting jumping off point because I think it's very important. I think it's very timely right now because we have all these students in Canada with, as you mentioned, expiring PGWPs. And in, in some cases, that's the only option that they have less, left, right? It's harder to get PR maybe than ever before, especially for those inside Canada, which is kind of sad. But anyways. Why don't we start by talking about that corporate side of things? What's your experience been like? What are you seeing right now? Any horror stories you can share? And, and then what maybe what we'll work our way towards is, you know, what should people be aware of? And, and what's the, how is this supposed to operate legally, right? That kind of stuff. Yeah. So what, I, what I'm seeing right now is, as you mentioned, you know, there's sometimes I feel that the whether it's IRCC or the elected ministers that are doing this, they, they, they're, they're not really thinking through the actions of policies that they bring in. And by essentially pausing express entry for so long and bringing a lot of uncertainty into the system, and I mean, maybe tripling student admissions maybe over the last four or five years, whatever that's been like. Uh, I don't do a lot of student immigration, so I'm not too familiar on those numbers, but I do know they have gone up. We, we've oh, yeah. se- we've seen that yeah there's they're they're struggling to remain in the country because you can't extend a PWP or they did bring in those public policies but now they've explicitly stated we are not extending it for 2024 like they they put that line on their on their website in the announcement so what what's happening now is a lot of employers I would say shady employers and really 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 shady consultants and there's just they're 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 preying on these students who are just looking for a way to stay in Canada, looking for a way to change their occupation and saying, you know what? Yeah, you've got to use my consultant, 40, 50, 60,000 dollars. I mean, there's an LMIA group I'm part of. It's over 160,000 people on Facebook and I'm seeing that you know, yeah, they're 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 saying market price, market price, LMIA available, market price. So they are selling the job offers. There's just not mm. been enough to to stop that and and put an end to it. So it's really taken right. off now, and it's it's terrible. 
And and I even just want to take a step back and quickly explain. I mean, the professionals that are that are listening are probably nodding their heads, or, or maybe some are surprised, or maybe some aren't. But maybe for like the aspiring immigrants or, or professionals from other countries. So the the way it works here in Canada is, in most cases, if you want a work permit through a you know job offer, the employer has to apply for what's called an LMIA labor market impact assessment, and only if that is approved can the worker then apply for a work permit. Now, what's happened, and what Stephen alluded to is. The international student numbers have just exploded over the last five years. So you have all these people coming in as temporary residents, right, students, and then maybe they graduate and they get in Canada what's called a PGWP postgrad work permit. But then, as Stephen also mentioned, while they're turning the faucet stronger for international students, they've like tightened the faucet for PR, aka, well, express entry specifically, right, which is PR, you know, the economic program for PR which means it's even harder for those international students to get good jobs and qualify for permanent residence. So what happens when your postgrad work permit is about to expire? If you can't get your PR, the best way and sometimes the only way to extend is to get an LMIA-backed work permit. Now, the, the X factor here is you're not allowed to sell LMIAs, right? Like what Stephen's alluding to, which is employers have to cover all of the costs associated with an LMIA, the government fees, any fees associated with using a service provider, like a, like a regulated consultant like Stephen. Uh, but what's happened now is students are so desperate, and I guess employers, are, employers and some of the shady dealers that they're working with are so cognizant of that, that they're selling these LMIAs for, as, as you were saying, sometimes tens of thousands of dollars. So what do we think how do you fix it, Stephen? I mean, number one, obviously, the, the, the nozzles need to be turned a little bit, right? If we're yeah. not going to make an easy enough pathway for people inside Canada, we probably shouldn't be allowing as many students, or we should be more strategic about which students we're allowing in, because it should be ones that can have an easier pathway to PR. But beyond that, like, what, what do you think? If, if you had a magic wand, if you were Minister Miller right now, <laughs> what would you do to try and solve this problem? I, I would uh, immediately remove the immigration value of an LMIA. So I would remove that 50 points for arranged employment or... In, really? Yeah, I would. I would. I, I think an LMIA should serve to... It, it should be just like an LMIA exemption. You've got to work for a year before you can claim the 50 points. I believe that that would be the way to do it. I think that what that would encourage is rather than these consultants at, and oftentimes licensed consultants... Rather than them defrauding and misrepresenting to Service Canada and IRCC, they're also then misrepresenting to the CRA if they're participating in, you know, payroll cycling. So I I believe that Canada should focus its, its uh, let's say there should be more points as well allocated towards work experience in Canada. So performance in Canada, right? Like the, the, the Josh, mm. you know, the, the point of the economic immigration is for people who can become economically established in Canada. What's a better, you know, factor than somebody working for 80k a year for you know provincial government that's not going to do an LMIA for them and they're in a tech occupation like that was one of the one of the uh, clients that I had that waited very long to get an ITA but he eventually did get one you know look at their their past history in Canada and consider that rather than just a perceived you know a an offer of arranged employment let's say uh, so I would remove the, I would remove the 50 points and, uh, and then I would also, interesting yeah, I would increase the penalties for, uh, for, for that, obviously, because it's just administrative right now. Employers pay fines, consultants get a slap on the wrist from the college, uh, but there's, there's really no, uh, yeah, it, it, <laughs> it is human trafficking as far as I'm concerned, right? It, it's, it, it should not be It's happening. modern day, right? Yeah. Like, like basically modern day human trafficking, which you're making them pay for as well. I mean, I definitely agree with the second with the second side, which is, I mean, the regulators kind of have to wake up, right? If th there's a reason why this is happening, it's because people can get away with it, right? So yeah, if, if ESDC can tighten up, if the colleges and the regulators can tighten up. Now, so let's go back to the 50-point idea, because I think that's, that's interesting. But how, so I think that's a good idea in terms of solving a little bit for PR, 
But how does that solve the... So let's use this use case, right? International student graduates, they get their PGWP. They're mm -hmm. stuck working at Tim Hortons, right? Yeah. Or whatever, driving Uber, right? Whatever. And they're nearing the end of their PGWP. That still doesn't fix their need to probably get an LMIA, right? Whether right. it gets them an extra 50 points or not for express entry, in that case is, is, is irrelevant at that point. Because their need right here and right now is, I just want to stay in Canada, Yeah. right? So that's why I try to think about it in, in almost like two ways. Number one is, how do, how do we fix the PR side? But how do we make it easier for international students that have graduated, they've spent tens of thousands on tuition alone, right? Yeah. Now that what, what's happening is they're probably working a job that's less than what they're qualified for, Right. Um, because they can't get a job for whatever reason or that industry, you know, they got pushed into a business admin program, right? Because that's what the study abroad agent sold them back home, right? Right. They still don't really have like a clear pathway to PR. So what I would kind of counter with is we need a better, I mean, this is a huge problem, right? Yeah. It, I think it extends way beyond just fraudulent LMIAs. It starts even as early as they're back in their home country considering studying in Canada. But how do you think we can like maybe improve it from like a systematic standpoint where we are actually setting up these temporary residents for, for more success in the long run? You know what I mean? So they don't have to turn to these because probably a lot of them, they don't want to have to pay 50K for an illegal LMIA, right? I right. would assume. Um, for some of them, that's their only option, right? Like any thoughts on how we can redesign maybe more of the system? Yeah, 100%. I'd love to weigh in on that. And like you said, at the beginning of the conversation, we got a lot to get through. So I can see how we probably won't get through it all. But I think we're having a good conversation now. Um, I, I recommended on my Twitter the other day a couple times is ratios. We got to look at ratios. Look at this, Josh. They're talking about caps for uh, the international student program. I, I went to McGill University. I got an engineering degree from McGill. And you know, back then we wore it as a badge of pride at McGill that we've got 26% of the population is international students. It, it, it wasn't to, you know, make more money. It was, we were, we liked the diversity of the school. It's a challenging school to get into and it was the best and the brightest, right? Uh, I think they'd really need to consider ratios. When I've seen some of these A-tips that come out and these uh, let's say strip mall DLIs are uh, <laughs> above massage parlors are <laughs> the, they're, uh, you know, they're, they're giving these PGWPs away and 99% are international students from a particular region of the world. That should be a pretty clear indicator that they're selling the, the PGWP. I mean, we, you, you're, you're familiar with the cap on low wage workers in certain industries for the LMIA program, because, you know, they don't want to have a ton of low wage workers in, in certain industries or in all the industries, but mm -hmm. they should consider something for, I think if a, if a school is 95% international, it's clear they're not selling an education because a Canadian is not willing to pay or a PR is not willing to pay for that education. So yeah, let, point. let's start saying, okay, let's, let's think about some ratios and obviously it'll be more than 2%. Our economy is supposed to grow at two to 3% per year. Of course, we're going to have more students. We want to attract younger people. So how we fix the program for the long term, I think, is really tighten up on the DLI and and on on the issuance of the PGWP on part and or full time public policy for working full time as a student, like those sorts of things. It really should be. I was I was just thinking about they should probably only be able to work part time if they are in a PGWP eligible program and they really need to tighten up on what is a PGWP eligible program and how to identify that based upon the numbers of internationals to domestic students, right? Right. Yeah, it, it makes a lot of sense. There's a lot of talk about capping study permits. Would you cap study permits? Well, I find that that's a great question. I don't quite know. I've thought I don't like so much, uh, let's say, caps and interference and absolute numbers. I think ratios are important, but I'd also like to see a study permit application maybe a little bit more challenging, you know, a, a bit more proof on the merit. Like what we, we know it's kind of ridiculous. Everybody writes in the SOP how they're going to go back home, but, uh, you know, many of them mm -hmm. do want to stay. So I think they need to reconsider that and 
okay, if this student's coming in and we intend for them to stay or they do want to stay for, you know, and get their permanent residence, are they going to be a valuable addition to our society? So I'd like to see a bit more, let's say flexibility on IRCC's end to make that determination. Uh, with, with well, other- And I would almost yeah. call that like a misalignment, right? right. So I, I totally agree, but it's like, you're asking people to basically pretend like you're going to go home, but then we have the PGWP. We yeah. have bonus points for work experience in Canada. So one thing is saying, hey, you got to prove to us that you're going to go home after the study permit. But then we have all these programs and policies attracting them and hoping hoping they'll stay here, right? Maybe it's even as, maybe we need two streams for the study permit. Maybe there's one stream for those that want to stay and settle and start a career and build a life in Canada. And another stream for those who want to get that Canadian degree and then go back home and use it for whatever, right? To, to, to improve their their career. I don't know, but I, I definitely agree. I, I, th- I think, I think setting caps as well is like, it's just so hard, right? How do you pick that number? Right. Yeah. I think it really comes down to the regulation that you're kind of alluding to, which is let's set some actual realistic restrictions on some of these DLIs or let's reevaluate them. Like they were talking about the trusted institution framework. Why in the world should a school be considered a DLI if they're not trusted, right? Yeah. <laughs> is that not kind of like, I don't know, that was crazy to me. But, that that uh, is, that is, that that shows that, uh, you know, what is the point of being a DLI? And I think these, these, these strip mall colleges, they should be treated just like, you know, ESL or FSL schools. Like, yeah, you want to come in and study temporarily for two years and do a useless business administration diploma by all means and pay 50 grand for it. But it would immediately cut off their lifeblood. So, uh, yeah, mm-hmm. I, I don't like the cap idea. I like the the ratios, tightening up on the DLIs, and uh, and 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 having a bit more. Yeah, considering maybe a an, another stream for study permits. Uh, and what I was kind of alluding to with uh, it goes into a bit significant benefit. But if there were if there was, you know, there was a bit more subjectivity on the study permit application on how that student is going to benefit Canada. I mean. You don't need to be that clever to know that if somebody's coming here to study, you know, to be an electrician, let's say, or a nurse, you really kind of want that person in Canada right now because mm-hmm. of the shortages. But if they're coming for a business administration diploma, are they really going to be that useful in our economy? And the answer is no. Right. So however they can, they can delineate that, I think would be, would be good. For sure. I, I think it's a clear case of the Wild West, right? It's been explosive over the last seven, eight, ten years, and it's time to kind of rein it in a little bit with better regulation, better programs, better system overall. So totally get it. Maybe to put a cap on that, Stephen, you'd mentioned, um, you know, a lot of Canadians don't know how bad this is, that this even exists, right? Like if I wasn't in yeah. this industry, I probably wouldn't know what an LMIA was, and I wouldn't know how much kind of fraud is going on. So maybe to kind of put a cap on this topic, like what are a couple sentences or a couple key things that you think the average Joe and Joette, quote unquote, should like maybe be aware of, or is there anything they can do to help? That's, you know, it, it it's tough to say. I, I do wish the average Canadian that is not familiar with the immigration process would know kind of what is going on and how there are people literally running LMIA farms. Right. They're, they're, mm-hmm. They have a lose a business that's losing money and they're just making money off of off of printing LMIAs, essentially. So I wish that Canadians knew that, that this was happening. And I would just encourage anybody, if you're if you're quoted that amount, just make sure you report it to all the authorities. You can report it to CBSA. They've got a tip line, report it to IRCC, report it to Service Canada, report them to the college if they are licensed. They're not supposed to be charging for any kind of arranged employment or any kind of a job placement fee. Right. So mm-hmm. that that's what I would uh that's what I would I would tell people. We just need more of them to listen to this episode, Stephen. <laughs> so we'll uh, we'll try to spread it around and and help some people. Um awesome. So I I want to shift focus a little bit to you'd alluded to kind of like the future of immigration, right? Yeah. The way maybe IRCC is reviewing applications, the application of AI, trying to simplify them. And, and at the same time, too, I kind of want to loop in all these public policies because I think we can kind of use this as, a, as an amalgamation and one big chat on what are we, what have we seen from IRCC? What do you think we're going to continue seeing? 
what's good, what's bad, you know. Perfect. Yeah. So if there, I don't know if there's any specific line of thought or you wanted to jump in onto kind of any of those subtopics, but well, I'm super interested in this stuff, especially because of the work that we're doing. So right. happy to dive in. Yeah. And I'm always trying to, you know, I anticipate how I can better prepare SJP immigration for what the future is going to hold. And what I see is, you know, I, I, I've, I, I would say that, uh, and you'll, you can see on my website, I've, I'm really trying to emphasize application reviews. So I'd love to chat uh, just about this, where I see things kind of going is, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of technology out there, you know, Visto, for example, where you can put together a really good application, save a lot of time, compress PDFs. There's not the, you know, it's not 20 years ago where we're sending faxes to IRCC, although they still have a fax number as, as a, a field, <laughs> yeah. right? But <laughs> I mean, email replaced that, what, 25 years ago or something? So I found that funny, Josh. There was a, there was a, there was a glitch in the PR portal for a couple days where fax was a required field. I said, are you absolutely <laughs> kidding me? I could not think of anything that better of represents <laughs> yeah, of all fields. IRCC makes the fax a required one. So with all these tools and technology available and with AI and how fast that's going to change this profession, I really think that it's it's going to become about uh, application reviews. Like I do think that is the future. I do think people really should be uh, putting together their own applications sometimes with the help of software and that is available and then having an experienced consultant review it. I mean, it, uh, it reduces mm -hmm. a lot of requirements as a consultant, I'd say, to custody the data, things like that. And IRCC is not always thinking from a user experience point of view, where, you know, if it's in an authorized representative portal, the client can't see what is going on with their application. And the consultant is getting messages daily. Hey, can I have an update? Can I have this? So IRCC, yeah, they're slow to move. They're bureaucratic. But where I see the real benefit would be on, and especially the younger generation, right? Like the the millennials, I'd say, and, and the Gen Z, the Zoomers that are going to be coming to Canada, they're going to be doing their own applications. And uh, that that is kind of how I see things progressing in this in this uh, field. Right. Yeah, I, I don't disagree. I think especially in the next three to five years, we're going to see a lot of changes in number one, like you said, the way clients or potential clients, or you know, aspiring immigrants is what I should be saying. The way aspiring immigrants think about preparing and submitting their applications, I do think we're going to see a big shift in the way that lawyers and consultants do that type of work, because we're just scratching the surface, right, of what AI can do, right? So you get like, you know, and I tell our clients and prospective clients, give us one year and you're going to be practicing very differently with the way, hopefully a lot quicker and a lot more efficiently because of where I see some of the stuff that we're building um, going. Ironically, IRCC is like still of the opinion that like, hey, you don't need a professional, right? Yeah. You don't need to work with a paid rep. It's all over their website. Meanwhile, they can't make, you know, they can't make consistent portals that, that work well. So like, you know, I, I don't know. It'll be interesting to see where they go with that, right? Yeah. Where on one hand, they're saying, hey, you do not need a legal professional. On the other hand, there's all these new public policies. It's never been more confusing to navigate their website and all the different information. So a lot of people still do use legal professionals. But onto your point about like the types of service you're providing, are you seeing that play out in practice yet? See, I agree. I think this is where it's going to go. Are you seeing more and more clients opt for, you know, review packages and, and more consultative type work as opposed to, no, 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 Steven, just, just take my money and do the whole thing for me. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I mean, I uh, just had set this, well, I've, I've done about, let's say six express entry application reviews only. And Josh, I'll say that I've, I emailed the immigration representative's mailbox. I said, how do I do this on a use of rep form? I mean, it's, it's crazy, but uh, I, I'm pretty sure not a lot of consultants do this, but I basically have you appoint and then you cancel the rep and then you write a letter about how you've just basically reviewed the application, what you've done, how you've, how you've assisted. But do you have to do that? If a client just hires you and says, Hey, I just want to pay you whatever. And I've prepared everything and I want you to review and submit feedback, but I'm going to apply to IRCC. Yeah. Do you have to sign a use of rep for that? 
they recommended that I do in the authorized representative mailbox, mm. which I felt, okay, and can I say I've always done it? No, uh, because I know a lot of people do, you know, yeah, you're, you're taking a fee for review services. You're not a representative because the information's being That's what I was thinking. Right. You're not submitting an application on behalf of a client, right? I don't know. Maybe yeah. if someone from IRCC is listening <laughs> and they can chime in, they can let us know. My kind of thinking on that was, you know, if someone wants to pay you for review, it's kind of like a, it's like a glorified consultation, right? You're reviewing all their stuff and you're giving them your opinion. But unless you're applying to IRCC, submitting an application on their behalf, are you technically their paid representative? Yeah. I don't know. You are not, but you're supposed to declare if somebody's assisted you with an app, the application, right? So mm. that's kind of where I'd say it's a bit of a gray area. And then, of course, if you're assisting someone with a provincial nomination, it becomes even more, you're, okay, getting confused. But with all those, I've also given a bit of a, you know, a three-pager submission letter, which identifies how the client meets ah. the eligibility, admissibility, at, you know, almost as if I'm talking directly to the officer. It's, it's great, Josh, because I just say, look, I'm an authorized representative profession, like authorized representative. I'm not the authorized representative on this file. I've done the uh, use of rep form as you've recommended by the immigration representative's mailbox. Here's how the client meets the eligibility. Here's how they meet the medical. Here's how they meet this. Uh, they seem like a fantastic applicant. And those those have all actually mm. like the, the express entry. I'm still waiting on a couple, but the others have, yeah, they've converted to PR. And I recently did a, a consultation with a guy from Nigeria. You know, he paid um, on my website, booked online and, and just wanted me to review C11 actually that he was doing in the employer portal. So I gave him my mm. time and I, I think that's, that's where it will be going. So I, I do see there's an opportunity to, as a consultant, you know, I do perform those kinds of services that people want because they want control of their data. They want control of their application. For sure. And you're right. IRCC does say you don't need to use a, a rep, but there's all these crazy public policies and they're changing uh, requirements left, right and center and not announcing them. And, mm -hmm. uh, and then sending a biometrics request letter for additional payment of fees because they changed the policy on June 13th, right? So all these things are happening. Right. You know, a funny story about these policies. You know, client, he's a PR now, but, you know, uh, was nominated in Alberta for a rural renewal program and from Morocco. So he's in Canada, applied for a bridging open work permit. He was approved in 12 days, Josh, but I had no idea he was approved because it was never updated in the portal. I was surprised he was approved in 12 days because the processing time for an in-Canada application right now is, uh, you know, 113 days. It was because he's from Morocco and they brought in that public policy for the people. He wasn't even from the earthquake affected zone. So mm -hmm. I, I don't know why his application got to cut the line. I mean, he maintained his status in Canada. He's a PR now. It just didn't make any sense to me. And, you know, they're putting all this effort into then I can just imagine how the officers must be when they get this top down from like the minister. They're like, are you kidding me? We've got to do this now. Mm -hmm. We've got to ask. So, yeah, I, I, <laughs> I'm sure you can imagine that, too. Yeah, I, well, in, in terms of the public policies, we'll, we'll get into that in just a second. I've posted a lot about my opinions on public policies on LinkedIn just to put a pin on the on the, the use of rep conversation. I totally agree. I'm seeing this way more now when I talk to immigration lawyers and consultants where it actually is better for everybody. Everyone's happier because the client, as you said, maintains control of their application. They can submit it. They see everything. They get all the updates right there. The consultants and the lawyers, you're actually just being paid to do the most valuable work anyways, exactly. right? Exactly. Which is review and give feedback, right? The unfortunate part of when you hire somebody to do an entire application for you is like you're paying more money mostly to cover them to do admin work, right? Exactly. For Steven to log in, hope the portal works that day, create a new account, answer the 400 questions on the express entry portal, hope it saves properly, hope there's no error because you didn't include a fax number, right? <laughs> Submit it for you, deal with all the extra BS, right? Yeah. Have to check in because the notifications aren't working. You know what I mean? Exactly. So it's actually great. The client saves money, maintains more control, 
and the immigration professionals get to do the work that they actually probably enjoy, right? The consultative, reviewing, helpful work. And you don't have to spend as much work on admin, which means you can go post more content, network more, go get more clients, right? And, And continue to build your business. So I think it's great. I've seen many people that there's a few professionals I've spoken to that won't even apply on behalf of clients anymore. They just say, listen, I will only offer consultation review services. I am never logging into the, you know, the APR portal again (laughs) and great for them. So anyways, I agree with you. Um, It was certainly interesting to learn about some of that stuff with the use of rep form, which maybe some other Canadian professionals listening, maybe it's good for them to kind of hear the feedback that you've gotten. I do find it interesting that you include a submission letter in an application submitted by somebody else. But hey, if it works, why the heck not, right? So anyways, that's great. And we'll certainly keep tabs on where the industry goes and maybe, you know, round two in a year or two as as the tech gets better and and whatever. (laughs) Now, let's talk about public policies quickly. And I I don't think we have to belabor the point because I think you and I are probably thinking the exact same thing, which is, What I don't think people realize is like, sure, some of the public policies are good. Some of them are important, especially some of the, you know, the maybe the refugee stuff and, you know, people in dire need, et cetera, et cetera. I totally get that. But they've created so many public policies, I think some of which aren't required over the years. And the biggest problem is when you're creating a new public policy, you kind of alluded to this on, on, in terms of the backend processing. You need to have a team at IRCC draft it up, get it approved, create all the copy for the government website, create all the eligibility requirements, create all the manuals. Maybe there's new forms required. Maybe there's a new portal because for some reason they just keep building new portals, right, for every application type. And then, okay, you open the floodgates. They open it on a weekend for some reason. The portal crashes, blah, blah, blah. And now you have the processing team that's already understaffed and overworked and facing a backlog, who has to learn how to process a new application. And so you get errors and more delays, and that's why IRCC still has a backlog from three and a half years ago, right? So I totally agree. I, I don't know if there's anything else in terms of your thoughts or, or, or what can be done about it, or is it as simple as just scrapping the public policies? But yeah, curious to hear what you think. Well, I think, as you said, Josh, let's not belabor the point. The, the, the problem with the public policies is, is, is that it, it messes with a few things. And one of them is the predictability of the system, right? And when you're dealing with government timelines, government timelines that don't move at the speed of business, the, the, the challenge is, is for people who are trying to navigate, you know, these TR to PR pathways or uh, trying to keep up with this policy like they can't they can't it, it, it's it's executive order the whole point of a you know a bureaucracy and a big institution like ircc is to kind of maintain course and the direction that they're going in and and be well thought out with it so i and i don't think they've done that on a lot of these public policies as we've seen um so so yeah i, I wish they would just be a little bit more let's say deliberate a little slower and focus on on the biggest problems that stakeholders are saying they're seeing in the system right now. It's not uh, because a few people who are in Canada and they're originally from Morocco need a faster BOWP when they've already maintained their status, right? It mm-hmm. It's for, you know, people who've been waiting two years or their, their work permit stuck or, you know, technical glitches, those sorts of things. And it's clearing this backlog that they still have. I mean, I, th- I think it's ridiculous that a, a TRV can still take over 60 days for a lot of different countries, right? Or work right. permits, work permits, six months, nine months. I, it's, it's outrageous. Yeah. And, and I think, and, and you mentioned this kind of on your notes here, and I completely agree, which is, it seems like the approach from IRCC over the last four years has been in order it to improve, we need to do more. We need to add more policies. We need to make more steps. We need to give more options. I think, and I think you agree, they have to do the total opposite. They need to simplify. They need to shave. They need to cut. They need to go back to, like, I, I keep saying this on LinkedIn, IRCC has actually built a, a great core 
of an immigration system, in my opinion, right? The LMIAs when they're used legally, the work permits, internet, you know, Canada's one of the most popular countries worldwide for international students, although I think that reputation is being tarnished a little because of what we talked about at, at the beginning of the episode. I think Express Entry is a great program. I think they could adjust the scoring system maybe a little bit now that it, it's been around for, you know, nine years now. They, sh- they could maybe make a few adjustments, but I think it's a good program having a points-based PR system. So Global Talent Stream, like that's where I spent a lot of my time when I was practicing, right? Like we have we have a fast track work permit for tech workers. Yeah. It used to be amazing. Now we have now they're thinking about public policies and new streams for tech workers. We already have one. <laughs> Just make it fast again, right? Yeah. So, anyways, I don't want to I don't want to go down on that on that for too long. But what do you think? Do, do you agree? Like, Absolutely. what's the best way forward here? Less is more. Less is more. Complexity is the enemy of execution. Let's, they, they, they are, yeah, bringing in way too many things. I mean, yeah. And, 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 and they do have the program. I, I, and I fully 100% agree with you, Josh. I think that they've over the years built the best economic immigration system, a better economic immigration system than the United States, right? We've had, you know, express entries, a really, really good system. And, mm-hmm. and then, Okay, they went a little bit crazy with the international students, and that's why they need to address that root of the problem. But then going in and bringing category-specific draws, which I don't fully agree with. I know what they're trying to do with it, but I don't agree with the implementation and the six months work experience and all that. And mm-hmm. throw well, why not? Uh, Can we touch on that? Because I think that's an interesting comment. Yeah, I well, I think that IRCC is well. I I don't think I know. Josh, they're a federal department and Canada is a very, very large country. And each like each province, each municipality has different economic immigration needs. I think they did an amazing job increasing PNPs 40%. I think that provinces in charge of their own eligibility requirements, I could email an Alberta officer. I can, you know, you can email them. They have their, mm-hmm. their name, their credentials. You can call them sometimes. It's it's so much better if they kind of were to decentralize it a little bit and say, what is IRCC's main objective? It's like, make sure you're not letting people who have security or medical concerns into our country, right? Delegate mm. a lot, as much of the eligibility for the jobs or for the economic side to the provinces. Every, like, provinces have a... Interesting. Yeah, so that's a big so thing. W- would and- you say then, just to kind of maybe summarize or, or reword, get rid of the industry specific jobs and maybe rely more on PNPs as yes. like a proportion of, you know, overall express entry invites. Cause the, the one thing I will say is I think the main weakness of the point system is that it do- doesn't differentiate between a skilled worker who our economy might really need and a skilled worker that we don't. Right. right? Which is okay. I mean, no system is going to be perfect. Right. But I think that is the one big weakness, as well as work experience, right? I think it's kind of odd that a foreign worker with three years of experience caps out at the same amount of points as a foreign worker with 15 years of experience, right? Just as an example. But I don't know. I, I do understand. I, I actually do like what you're saying. I I didn't have a huge problem with industry-specific draws because I think it's like somewhat fair to say, listen, we need more tradespeople. We need more healthcare workers. French, I don't really understand. I don't. Yeah. I don't live in Quebec, so I mean, maybe I don't know. Maybe that's outside our scope here. I don't under like. I've lived in Toronto and Ottawa. We don't need more French speakers, in my opinion, unless I guess you're working at the government and you have to be bilingual, which maybe in Ottawa you do. But so I don't get that one personally. But um, yeah, I don't know. I, I I do like your idea of hey, listen, maybe maybe the federal government shouldn't be deciding which occupations are most in demand. Let's put even more power in the province's hands. Um, the PNP system is pretty good. My, my counter to that would be, but then it's more of a pain in the ass for the immigrants because now they got to go through the PNP first and then they go through express entry. But I don't know, it's not a terrible system. So yeah, I see where you're coming from. And, and I like what you said. You, you brought, you shed light on a very important point, which is that not all skilled work is created equal or not all is equally valuable. And and I've seen that as a problem. And, but 
again, this the system as a base foundation has been phenomenal. It just needs some minor tweaks. Like, hey, mm-hmm. I I I I don't think that a, a food service supervisor should have the let's say this getting sixteen dollars an hour uh, should maybe get the same points, fifty points as as a skilled software engineer getting paid one hundred and twenty k a year. So. And and this might be a little bit controversial to say, Josh, but I I believe maybe we want to consider earnings as well for points in express entry. You know, that mm, that is we're trying to bring people who are economically established. What happens when you bring in a lot of low skilled workers, a lot of temporary residents looking for really unskilled, let's say unregulated jobs, you get then what what Canada's never had before, which is kind of the 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 diversion between let's say Canadian citizens and PRs and new immigrants where it feels like they're all working in these really crappy jobs they're doing skip the dishes like the students thing we should be encouraging mm-hmm. more high skilled like we, we we want immigrants to be earning more than the average Canadian right, right. so that's a really interesting I've never heard anybody put put forward the idea of like linking points to salary I think some people would probably be very much against that. Of course. I think it's a good idea largely because, well, number one, like you said, if they're earning more, their proof of funds is probably, you know, much more safe and and reliable. But the the reason I really like it is because you could treat salary as a proxy for like supply and demand, right? 100%. Like who's earning the most pe- the most money in the country? It's the people who are most needed, right, to do very high value skills. One opinion that I've always had is that not even necessarily the provinces should have power of deciding what's most in demand. I think it should be employers. So what what I would even do is like scrap all of it, make LMIAs easier to get for companies that actually need them, right? So clamp down on all the fraudulent LMIAs. Make it easier for companies that actually need foreign workers to get LMIAs for them. And then it's only those people. And and you do give a, in my opinion, you do give a bonus for having an LMIA because you you actually earned it because this company's not going to sponsor you unless they don't actually need you and they're willing to go through the immigration portion. And then you don't need anything occupation-based you let the employers, you let the market decide, right? I'm a capitalist. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a capitalist kind of guy, right? So I'm like, put it in the hands of the companies, but regulate them so that they use it honestly. Right. And, um, you know, in a perfect world, in my opinion, PR programs could be very simple if we can, if we can get a good temporary resident system in place. So if we're only bringing in international students to come study in healthcare and STEM and trades and apprenticeships and blah, blah, blah. And we're letting companies that actually need to hire foreign workers get LMIs quickly and easily, maybe not like too easy, right? But like easy enough, right? right. Easy enough. So it's like, hey, I'm, an, I'm a legitimate employer. I'm, a, I'm trying to build a carpentry you know, company, whatever. I'm just using an example. I can't find enough carpenters. There's not enough tradespeople. Why don't they all go get LMIs? Because it's a pain in the ass right. and it's expensive. And now the consultants and lawyers keep raising their prices because it's a pain in the ass to do from an admin standpoint. So anyways, I'm going to stop ranting here. But basically what, what my thesis is, if we can improve the temporary resident programs, only bring in the good students that we need and that are coming for the right reasons, give companies the power to get legitimate LMIAs when they actually need them, and then just make it easier to funnel, funnel those people to PR we don't even need industry-specific draws or PNPs, right? PNPs are probably a good idea either way because it does make sense and they seem to be used for the right reasons. But yeah. I don't know. Does that make sense? All that ranting and raving? Yeah, I, I agree with you on on a lot of that, uh, particularly making the LMIA process easier. And a lot of people would say, well, Steve, you all, if it was easier, wouldn't more fraud be happening? I say no, because that now you're... you're if the all the good genuine employers that I chat with Josh they're like wait I got to wait like 9 months to bring someone over <laughs> no way I'll just I'll, I'll I'll figure out a way I'll put in more hours or whatever and by yeah. it's like when they Sad. when they make the tax code more complicated 
who are the people that can navigate it and who pay no taxes are the ones who have have the capital or the ability to to pay for an accountant to navigate that complex tax structure. So again, it comes back to the simplify to amplify and and make things better. I, I agree they should make it a lot easier. Like the, there's so many redundancies in that LMIA process. You know, <laughs> you've already found the worker. Now you're advertising to show as if you're you you know you haven't been advertising for the last eight months or whatever. And now you've, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the counts for 50 points. If, if the job offer is issued one year after your PR visa is issued is still valid. What, what multinational company is going to put on a, on a thing after you become a PR, this val- this offer is still valid for one year. I mean, large internationals will not do that. So, but yeah, mm-hmm. a guy running a subway that's, that's making 200 K a year off selling LMIAs, he has no problem putting whatever he needs to, to satisfy service Canada. So this is, this yeah. is where they need to really, and really tighten up. And I, I agree with you. They should, they need to make the LMIA process easier and they need to do everything they possibly can to let the market decide. And, and how do you do that? You just make it easier for employers to do it because then it allows the market to participate in it in the LMIA mm-hmm. process right and then you and by doing that you reduce the value of an LMIA if it is easier for an employer to bring an LMIA you would increase the competition in terms of points but you could get a bit more granular on the work experience with their NOA so what the reported income is and uh and yeah like i said people might not find that too popular with reported income but it is a very good indicator as to how much value they're delivering to to our economy for sure and and how does this relate steven to healthcare obviously a huge you know a, a huge part of our country that's struggling right now in terms of finding enough people it's also a concern because we provide free healthcare and we have a aging population, right? So over the next 10, 20, 30 years, we're going to need even more people. We're going to need more nurses, PSW, stuff like that. What are you seeing in, in that regard? You'd, you'd mentioned here nurses going out of status. I mean, to me, it's also crazy that like a nurse can't land in Toronto and, and work the next day, right? It's like, I don't know, what, six, 12 months worth of recertification, right? We need nurses so badly, but we make them jump through all these hoops. What what are your thoughts specifically in the healthcare industry? Well, yeah, well, I I should say that my my fiance she's uh, she's a registered nurse, and so she hears me complain a lot about immigration <laughs> and the colleges, of course. And and when she transferred her license from Alberta to BC, it 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 took her five months. It took five months to get BC right. Alberta. To and BC. she's Canadian. She's Canadian, and she was born here. Wow. So it's yeah. it's, it's wow, and and educated here. I'm surprised they didn't ask for an IELTS exam, you know? <laughs> so uh, there's there's that with the healthcare. But what, what really frustrated me, I get an email one day from a nurse who had gone out of status. And I said, okay, what's going on? I looked into it. So he, he was a nurse in, in, I should say, in Hamilton. An LPN, like he came to Canada for, studied for one year. He was an RN in the Philippines. Come studies here for one year. Gets a one-year PGWP. He's working. In, in healthcare as an RPN, I think, in Ontario or RPN in Manitoba, but then it became an L- LPN, I think, in, in Ontario or vice versa. And yeah, he, he just went out of status. They they weren't going to support him for an LMIA. Hospital says, yeah, we don't know how to do this. Like, we, we're not sure how to navigate this process. Oh my God, we got to do our payroll. All, all these mm-hmm. things. And I said, why don't they have like an LMIA exemption? in these really in-demand things or make it easier for the LMIA process, like you say, you know, 77 business days for a PR LMIA right now. So I applied to restore his status prior to even having the LMIA approved. We just had the number because it had been submitted. Like it was really, really tight. And then I had updated with, you know, with the LMIA when it was approved. And I had, that was actually an application review. I had reviewed it for the employer on the LMIA. It was approved. And and, and yeah, and then he he did eventually restore his status. But the fact we had a licensed practical nurse out of status for five months in Canada, mm. just because yeah, public institutions like hospitals and schools, early childhood educators, like they don't want to go through the LMIA process. And I think that these government institutions probably would be the least likely to accept like 
money for an LMIA. I, I don't think somebody working in, yeah, in HR for, you know, a hospital would, would say, yeah, you know, give me 50K and I'll give mm -hmm. you a job offer. I don't think that's happening. So why they haven't really picked up the speed on that is kind of mind blowing to me. So, you know, they, that, that, that is something that they should, I think, be focused on. And it still took a good four months to get the LMIA approved. I mean, it's supposed to be an essential occupation, right? But no, it still mm -hmm. took a lot of time and he was out of status for a good amount. So I just wanted to yeah comment on on that. And I would I would love to see a more simplified pathways for our healthcare workers. And yeah, the, the, the big challenge too with the different provinces and the colleges, again, the regulatory colleges uh, that that uh, they act like gatekeepers, right? I know they have a right. role. It's important what they do, but uh, I got to respect Nova Scotia for, you know, accepting nine different, you know, people from nine different countries can just write an NCLEX and then get their license, but they still need to get the job offer. And I think that's what, what makes it tough for a lot of larger institutions. Right. Yeah. I, I hope we see improvements. It, it's like the irony is just brutal, which is we even have these people in the country. They just can't get certified or recertified to do the things that we need so badly. So anyways, maybe what we'll do is we'll, we'll put a pin in it there, Stephen. This, this has been really good, especially, you know, wide ranging, right? From LMIA fraud to, you know, the, the types of representation that, that we might see more often or, you know, the way immigration lawyers and consultants work with their clients, all the, you know, design, all that kind of stuff. Any last thoughts that you'd like to close on or, you know, any last um, requests or recommendations for anyone that might be listening? Oh, well, if somebody's listening, I would, I would, uh, well, it depends on, on what, what they need. Right. I mean, overall to, I think a lot of the students that are expiring, I do have a soft spot in my heart for them because I feel like they have been neglected. They've been taken advantage of by these DLIs, uh, you know, really consider getting into the occupation specific or learning French if you can, or there's no shame in going back home for a little bit until things kind of, the froth comes off top with what's going on with immigration right now, because things are off the charts, let's say with, you know, backlogs, changes. I think that we may see a, a, another change of the minister this year. We might see a change of government in 2025, or at least that's when there's an election. So just to, mm -hmm. to not lose hope and uh, and and be willing to switch occupations or go to a smaller town. Canada is a very big country, Josh. And I always say right. to to a lot of people, there's a lot of benefit in, in, in coming to Canada and going to a smaller place. You'll have more community support. Rent will be a lot cheaper. People want to support you. There, you know, you know it's, it's a good way, I think, for a lot of people to consider that rather than going to the big cities and the GTA, like seriously consider For going sure. to the, sometimes the infrastructure is even better in smaller towns. You know, you go to a dog park in a small town, not a lot of people are using it. You go to a dog park in the city, it's overwhelmed. Right. So uh, that's, that's just a, one tiny That's a example. great point. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, cost of living, another huge, huge topic that we'll we'll have to save for for the, for the next time. But yeah. uh, Stephen, this is this is really great. Thank you again for coming on. If anybody is interested in getting in touch or maybe learning more about you or your services, where do you recommend that they go? Uh, they could check out my website at sjpimmigration.com or my YouTube channel at sjpimmigration. Awesome, and we'll link to those in the description below. Stephen, thanks again for coming on the show. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Josh.